Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. There is a little known fact about me, and that is I, I like fishing, or I like the idea of fishing. Um, I think fishing is a great sport, it's a great hobby, uh, you know, however you like to look at it. Um, in fact, I've got a couple of fishing rods at home, I've got, you know, different reels, and I've got a tackle box with different lures and you know, bait and, uh, and hooks and things like that. But the reality is, oh, well, actually, I even I watch YouTube videos on how people fish. I like to see how they you know, catch their fish and the different fishing techniques and how they clean it and process it. But the reality is that I've never ever caught a fish in my life. <laughs> and the reality is that the, probably the only, thing I've been, the only time I've been fishing is probably twice in the last 37 years of my life. Um, and that's pretty interesting, right? Because here's, you know, I've got everything that I know about fishing. I've got, you know, the gear that I need to do fishing. And yet, um, what I claim to have and what I claim to know does not seem to be what I actually practice. Um, which means that if you guys are good at it, let me know if you're going somewhere, because I'd like to come. Um, but the reality is, as Christians, um, we can often be like that as well. You know, we can know everything there is to know about what our Christian life is. We can know everything we need to know about discipleship and evangelism and, you know, and reaching out to one another and, and, and everything that the Word of God says about the gospel. Yet sometimes in the way that we live or somehow in the way that we live, that knowledge that we have and this understanding that we have does not often translate into the way that we live. It does not become evident in the way we live. We say that we're a gospel-preaching church. But if someone walked in through our doors this morning, would they see the gospel? We say we're a loving church. We love because Jesus loved us. If someone walked in through the doors this morning, would they see the love of Christ in our midst? I'm not saying there isn't. What I'm saying is that often we can actually miss the point in terms of what we know and how we live. And so this morning, um, I just want to look at a passage from Ephesians just to encourage us to um, consider um, how what we know has to translate into how we ought to live. Right? So this morning we'll be looking at the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Now I did um, um, preach from Ephesians, the previous passage last year, and we're just continuing on from where I left. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. It says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we'll stop at that, even though that passage continues on from there. So Paul begins this passage by saying, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So when Paul says, I therefore, um, it's a connecting word, it's a conjunction, meaning there's, there's something else that he's talking about over here. Now, if you think about it, um, we are at chapter 4, which means that he's probably talking about something he spoke in chapter 1 through 3. Now, if you look at the book of Ephesians, in, in, in a broad sense, the book of Ephesians can be um, you know, split right down the middle. Chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. Um, chapters 1 to 3 primarily deal with uh, doctrine, theology, and chapters 4 to 6 deal with practice. So, what you know and how you live. And so in the first three chapters, um, uh, particularly in a, in a very broad sense, chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, Paul talks about uh, this new life that you've been given. So we know from Ephesians 2 that, you know, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a work, not of man, lest anyone should boast, right? So there's nothing that we do in salvation. So he's emphasizing the fact of, no, we have been saved by grace through faith. And then he also in chapter 1 talks about the spiritual blessings that we have. In chapter 1, in the end of it as well, he talks about the fact that we would realize the value of these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But then the second half of chapter 2, 
he introduces this new idea. So there's a salvation and what we've received and all these blessings. And then he introduced the idea of a new family, a new group of people. So he doesn't just stop and say, oh, you've been saved and that's it, all good, off you go. No, he continues and he says that there's this new group of people that you've been made part of. And so from the uh, second half of chapter 2 towards the middle of chapter 3, he talks about this new group of people. He introduces them as the church. And so he says that you know, the church came about because of what God has done through Christ. He has brought people who are far off, who are nearby, who are divided. There was no Jew, you know, Gentile. He brought them all together and made this new family of people called the church. And what he says in Ephesians 2 in regards to salvation is so that um, the God's workmanship will be put on display. So the idea of salvation or in salvation for ourselves is so that the workmanship of God is put on display. But then also in regards to the church, he says in chapter 3, the whole idea of having this new family, these new people, is also for the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to the rulers and authorities. So both in salvation and both in, the, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in adding to the church, or both in the church, um, the, the reason why God has done this is so that his manifold wisdom, his workmanship can be shown for the whole world to see and understand and to glorify God. And so in that same regard, towards the end of chapter 3, Paul prays for these people that on the basis of what they know, that they would grow in their understanding of the love of God. And as they grow in that, that they will be a people that are built together in Christ through the Spirit. And so that's where Paul finishes up before he starts this passage that we looked at this morning. Now, I just want to emphasize that... um, um, you know, this, this um, chapter in chapter 4 when he says, I therefore urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling, he really is now starting to put the pressure and say, well, I've talked to you about all these things about salvation, the church, and I've prayed for you that you, know, you, you would grow in your love and understanding of these things. Now here's how you live it. Here's where the rubber hits the road. Here's what you put to practice what you know as theory and doctrine. Here's what you know about fishing that you've got to use to start fish, fishing, right? So Paul now starts this and says, therefore, which means everything that I said, therefore, walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Now for today, um, we'll be looking at um, three primary things in terms of how we are to walk in this way. You know, this, uh, Paul re- wants us to realize the importance that when he urges us to live in a manner worthy of your calling, he's not making a suggestion. This is something that's really serious. This is something that's really important. He doesn't say that, um, I think it's a good idea to walk in this way. He doesn't say that, you know, it's a, you know, it's a nice thing to do this. He says, I urge you. The idea of urge is almost like a life and death situation. It's like saying someone's ready to jump off a cliff. And you're telling that person, don't jump because you'll die. You know, and, and it's, it's with that sense of urgency that Paul is saying, I urge you to walk in a manner. So it's something that's really important for Paul, for him to say that. And he wants us to pay careful attention to what he's saying. And so for um, today, there are three things that um, I'd like to flesh out in terms of what Paul says we have to uh, walk like. And he says we have to walk in unity. So he says... Three things. First, the mark of walking in unity, verse 2 and 3. Then the reason for walking in unity, verse 4 to 6. And the means of walking in unity, verse 7. Okay, so let's look at first, how are we to walk? So he's clearly saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So because of everything that's happened, you know who you are. You know what body you've been placed as a part of. Now, because of all of these things and the reality of that, Walk in a manner, walk in that same manner, worthy of your calling that you've been called to. And so he now says in verse 2 and 3, he explains how we are to walk. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul here is asking us to walk in a way so as to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
and that we are to do this by being humble, by being gentle, by being patient, and by bearing with one another. Now, I don't uh, think there's anything in the book of Ephesians that seems to indicate there was a particular conflict to the people that he's writing, to the churches at Ephesus that he's writing to. Uh, in fact, I think, um, you know, the, uh, the reality is I think it's, it's a bit more than that. I think it's not just the fact that there's uh, no conflict, but he's proactively asking them to live a certain way. Now, if you think about um, unity in terms of how the world sees unity, how we define unity, uh, let's say there's a conflict happening in Russia and Ukraine. So when we think of peace, uh, you know, we often don't think of unity. We think, when we think of peace, we think of absence of conflict, right? So what Paul says here is that um, we had to walk, uh, or we had to walk in a way, uh, let me just take that passage, we had to walk in a way that's eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And I think that word peace sort of marks or gives a bit of an idea of what this maintaining the unity looks like. So when you look at a conflict like Russia and Ukraine, um, when you think of peace, we often think of absence of a conflict. But biblically speaking, peace is a little bit more than that. Peace is not just the absence of a conflict, but peace also, what in salvation, what God has done with us is he's made us one. And that reality that we, uh, Paul talks about in chapters 1 through 3, the reality that we've been saved, but we've been made one through the Spirit, joined together with this body of people. So it's not just the fact that there is no conflict, but the fact that there is a proactive unity and a proactive union between God's people. And it is that fact that Paul is trying to talk about over here, that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. In Ephesians 2.14, um, you know, the same word for peace is used to say, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul here packages peace with uniting and breaking down the wall of separation. And in Ephesians 2.22, he explains that this peace plays out when he says, in him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you continue reading on from Ephesians 4, you will see that this peace and unity that he's talking about ultimately causes the church to function the way it is. And we won't look into that today, perhaps another time, but it will continue to cause, cause the church to continue to function in a way that is meant to function. And as it functions, uh, the church will mature and grow and it gets built itself up in love. And when that happens, God gains all glory. So that's the end goal of this peace and unity. But the important thing to note here is that we are simply called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are not called to create this unity. Instead, we are simply called to maintain this unity. You see, there is nothing, there's absolutely nothing that we can do to create unity. What unites us is really the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit as he lives in us and he joins us together as one as we read in Ephesians 2.22. So then this begs the question, if the Holy Spirit unites us, why should we maintain the unity? What can we possibly contribute to this unity? Now Paul is not saying that the Holy Spirit needs a help in maintaining the unity. Instead, we are eagerly maintaining the unity because it's the doctrinal truth that we are united through the Spirit. So the reason why he's saying you have to maintain the unity of the Spirit is because by default our position is that we are united. But that unity is displayed. That unity is made evident in the way that we live. In the way that we live with one another. Keep in mind, this is all tying with the fact that He saved us and He has made us part of this new family. And so the uni unity that we all share as believers in Christ through His Spirit is made evident in how we maintain that, how we are united therefore in one mind. Why is this important? Because as we practice maintaining the unity in the church by building each other up, like I said, this is not just the, like it's not talking about the presence of conflict, but going the other way, where we are proactively building one another up, 
We are proactively and intentionally trying to maintain the unity by, by living in a way that reflects the unity that we have through Christ. What happens when we do that? Because when we do that, we start building each other up and our focus becomes about Christ. Our focus becomes about his purposes. And as we do that, we as a church will mature. And as we do that, we as a church will grow. And as we do that, we will be built up in love. And what happens? Ultimately, God gets the glory. Now, it's important to understand that Paul says we, are to, we have to be eager to live this way. We have to be eager to live this way to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This eagerness to live is not an option. What Paul is talking about here to maintain the unity of the Spirit is not optional. It's something that every Christian has to do. If someone names the name of Christ and says, I believe in Jesus and I'm a child of God, then this eagerness and this attitude towards wanting to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that is demonstrated by how we live within the body is not an option. This is Christianity 101. This is basic Christianity. There's no Christian who says, I love Jesus, but does not want to live this way. Which is why Paul's saying, is this something really important? I urge you to live this way. Moving on in verse 2, Paul says that this unity that we're talking about um, is characterized by a few things. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. So, firstly, Paul says that the eagerness to maintain this Christian unity or to live in a way that promotes a unity within the body because the Spirit unites us, is firstly characterized by humility. Now, the idea of humility was foreign to the, uh, to the culture of Paul's time. Uh, in fact, the Romans saw humility as, a, as, a, uh, as something weird, and they actually, uh, it, was a, it, was, it was spoken of in a negative sense as far as Christians were concerned. In fact, the word for humility was coined because of the Christians and the way that we're living. In fact, the culture we live in right now is not all that different. Um, humility is not looked upon as a very great virtue or character. In fact, people uh, you know, promote self-love and self-centeredness and look, about, you know, look at yourself and look after yourself and it's all about you, do what's best for you. We live in a world that is so much focused on self that uh, humility is sort of considered almost... Um, um, you know, a weak thing to have, you know, almost considered insignificant. And it is in that context, it is in that culture of, Roman culture of not having, understanding humility that Paul's writing and saying, you have to be humble. The example of Christ's humility, like, humility, like we read this morning for the Bible reading, um, it re- in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. You see, Christ never stopped being God. He never stopped being God, but yet he took human form, humbled himself, even to being Uh, killed on that cross for us. You see, true humility is not necessarily about having a low view of ourselves. And true humility is not about having a high view of ourselves. True humility is not being a doormat. True humility is about having a right view of ourselves as God sees us. And that's what true humility is. It's to see ourselves as God sees us. It's to see others as God sees them. You see, when we have uh, you know, a low view of ourselves, we often end up in false humility. Or we end up being people that are so influenced and coerced by our culture that we just do, yeah, I'm just being humble and do whatever I, I'm told to do. That's not what it is. Humility is about seeing ourselves the way God sees us. So what happens when we are humble? We start to see our sin more. We start to see our fallenness more. We start to see the need for Jesus Christ. We start to see the need for the gospel. When we fail, we run back to the gospel. When we do well, we run back to the gospel. We run back to Jesus Christ. 
we depend on him. We grow in prayer. We grow in love. When we're humble, we start to see others in the same way that God sees them. So suddenly we start to see others and love them the way Christ loves them and the way that Christ sees them. We start to judge less. We start to care more. We start to love more. We start to want to do spiritual good to one another more. We are called to be humble. And this humility leads to gentleness and patience and ultimately to bearing one another with love. Now the word gentleness here really is talking about power that's under control. So um, it's like saying, you know, I'm capable of, you know, really doing something harmful, but I'm just being gentle by uh, restraining myself from doing that. It's like a wild animal that's tamed. It has the capability and the capacity to actually be wild, but still it is restrained, uh, self-restrained and is tamed so it actually uh, behaves in a gentle way. That's what gentleness is. It's not saying that you're a doormat. It's saying that it's power that's under control. In the same way that Christ was gentle, the same way that Christ lived as an example. Next word, patient, can also be translated as long-suffering. So humility leads to gentleness, and gentleness uh, leads to patience. Patience is really um, also translated as long-suffering. It is really to suffer for a very long time, even in the most difficult circumstances. It's about being gentle even in the most difficult circumstances with the most difficult people perhaps and to suffer for a long time that way. That's a very interesting character to have because we live in a day and age where we're so indignant. We get with righteous indignation very quickly. We, we feel like we need to uh, you know, say those words and, and uh, get those words in to really rip down the other person to let them know how we feel as though the... You know, the um, you know, moral equilibrium of the world has gone off when we get hurt. Walking in a way of unity, walking in a way of really uh, living a life um, how God calls us to live, means that we have to be gentle with one another. And so as we are uh, gentle with one another, um, this leads to um, bearing one another with love. Now the word love here is used as agape love, which we all know is the sacrificial love that was demonstrated by Christ. And, and so as we are humble, as we are gentle, as we are patient, we end up bearing one another in love. It's knowing that uh, the same way that Christ loved us, in the same way that Christ continues to love us, even when we fail again and again and again and again, that is the same love that we are to be marked by. We didn't come this morning to church because we've got everything perfect in our lives. We didn't come to church because we've had a great day and we feel like we've got our spiritual best on this Sunday. We come to church to worship God, but we come as people who have failed Him miserably in this week. But does that change the love of Christ towards us? No, it doesn't. We experience His love, His mercy, His graciousness, His goodness, day in, day out. The very fact that you woke up on the right side of the bed this morning and you were breathing, you had even, you know, eyesight to see was because Christ and God deliberately ensured that you had eyes to see and you had a breath to have. That's how much he cares and he loves for us. And that is the way that we have to be with one another, to bear one another in love. And often this love is sacrificial that, and it says that I will love you regardless of what uh, circumstances, even if it costs me. And often this, and not often, all the time, this love costs something. So as believers, we are to be those that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we do that by being humble, by being gentle, patient, and bearing one another in love. And what does this do? It maintains the unity of the body. Like I said, it's not the absence of conflict. It's the proactive living this way of Christian, of building each other up, pointing each other back to Christ. And ultimately, we built up into maturity and be marked by love. Now, for those of you who take care of your physical fitness, um, which I'm a stranger to, um, you know what it's like if you don't keep yourself fit. You know what it's like if you don't do your exercise. It's not just a matter of, oh, I'm just not eating unhealthy. It's a matter of actually doing what you need to do to make sure your body is 
toned and your body is, you know, uh, has the strength and the uh, ability that it has to remain fit. Um, ignoring that, on the other hand, will start to um, cause difficulties. You will start to become like me. Or <laughs> you will start to, uh, you know, uh, your body will start to have its effects that are negative, that are not good for you. And that's the same way how uh, this unity works. If we're not eagerly, proactively and intentionally working towards the unity of the church, then inevitably the effect of that, of not doing that, will cause disunity in the church. This is not just the fact that, oh, there's some problem and we need to work on unity. I don't think there's any visible problem that I'm aware of that we've got in our midst. But we're still called to work on this unity because if we don't, then there'll be massive problems. We won't, we'll end up being a church that won't glorify God. You see, the work of the unity is practically seen, really, in our relationships with one another. We're not united because of political views. We're not united because we're conservative, whether you vote Labour or Liberal or uh, Nationals or whoever you vote for. We're not uh, united because we have certain views about um, you know, um, immigration or whatever it is that you may have. We don't have even unity because, you know, we like to homeschool our kids or because we like to, you know, uh, you know live in certain conservative um, circles. We have the unity because of what Christ has done. And this is seen mostly in our relationships with one another. What unites us is not the fact that we are in the same stage of life as parents and children or we are single, so young adults, so we are older and retired. Or What unites us is the fact that we have been made one by the Spirit in Christ. It is the reality that has to be played out in our relationships. And that binds our relationships. And that's what makes us uh, grow and to encourage one another and to disciple one another and to help each other mature and grow and to be marked by love. This work of unity happens when we have relationships that are centered on the word, centered on prayer, and centered on true fellowship. All three at the same time. Because if you, have the, if you don't have the word and you have prayer and you've got fellowship, then our unity is centered on ignorance. If you have prayer, if you don't have prayer and you have the word and you've got fellowship, then our unity will be based on pride and self-righteousness. If we don't have fellowship and we center our unity on the word and on prayer, then our unity will be very superficial. Very superficial. And you know what happens when you have superficial relationships? You have superficial churches. When you have superficial churches, you pretty much have the glory of God thrown out the window and the glory of man placed in there. Moving on to our next point, he now having explained that we are to live in this way, he now gives us a reason why um, we have to walk in this way. Going to our second point, he says in verse 4 and 5, he says, the reason why to walk this way is because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the reason Paul here says that we have to maintain this unity is because we are positionally united together. And again, he's just emphasizing what he's just emphasized in chapters 1 through 3. In salvation, we have been united together. And that is the reason why we have to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, there's no amount of church programs there's no amount of practical ways of developing unity or commonalities or common interests or a common stage of life or anything common that can uh, create the unity other than the unity that we have through Christ. And that is the unity that should be driving us. Because the unity that drives, uh, the, the reason, that the, or the, the truth that drives our unity uh, will ultimately bear itself in its fruit. If it is that you know, commonalities and culture and things like that, that are driving our unity, then it will manifest itself in just being a cultural church. 
But if it's the word of God and what Christ has done and this new people that he has made us as a part of that drives our unity, if it's the truth of scripture that drive our unity, then that is what we will be marked by. That is what when someone walks through the front doors of our church, they will see us as. They will see a people who are marked out for God. He starts in verse 4 and says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Paul here says that there is one body, meaning there is only one body. For believers throughout the world, there is a universal church, there is one body. Regardless whether you are in different countries or denominations, or if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and put your trust in what he has done for you, then you are part of one body. Ephesians 2 verse 14 to 16, Paul says uh, again, uh, himself is our peace, um, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In saving us, God brought, made us part of one body, men, women, Jew, Gentile, slave, uh, master. So then this begs the question, so what does being uh, one body have to do with maintaining the unity? Like I said earlier, this is because if, as part of one body, if we do not mutually care for each other, if we're not doing what we're called to do, then the body gets neglected. And when the body gets neglected, it starts decaying, it starts dying, it, starts, um, dis- it becomes dysfunctional. And so as members of the body, or as members of Grace Community Bible Church, which is, a, which is a visible expression of this universal church, our responsibility is to live, to maintain the unity of the body, or the spirit and the bonds of peace, knowing that we are part of this one body. The question is, are you living this way as a, as a member, as a Christian, as a member of a body, are you living this spiritual reality in this way? Or is your relationship very superficial? How are you spiritually caring for the body? And what is the role that you play towards maintaining the unity in the body? Because there is no Christian who can say that I'm a Christian but does not live this way. That's not the Christianity of the Bible. Moving on, Paul says that we have to live in a way that is um, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit because there's one Spirit. So it's, the, uh, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that reveals Christ to you. It's the same Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin. It's the same Spirit that um, you know, reveals the truth to you. It's the same Holy Spirit that um, is the mark that uh, ultimately um, signifies that you're a Christian. As the same Holy Spirit that does the work in each and every single individual Christian. And Paul says, reminds us that we have one Spirit. Our unity comes from the fact that it's the same Spirit that is doing the work in your life and my life and somebody else's life. And it is the same Spirit that binds us together, that unites us together with God and unites us together with one another. In Ephesians 2.22, Paul says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so because the Holy Spirit is working in us actively in producing fruit, we are called to live in a way that reflects this oneness, this one Spirit that is working in us. Moving on, he says, Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to our call. Again, reminding us that you know, when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were called to one hope. What is this hope? It's the future glory. It's the fact that one day we will be in heaven with Jesus. There's so many things realized when we are in heaven. We'll realize that, you know, the, 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 the truth that there will be no more pain, no sorrow, no suffering. That will be realized when we are in heaven. The truth that now we know in part, but when we are in Christ, with Christ, we will see him face to face. We will physically be in his presence, worshiping him. Another thing, we won't have any sin. Our struggle and our battle and our, uh, you know, this, this, this sin that really corrupts us and that we hate so much, 
It won't be there anymore. There's so many things to look forward to. And so this one hope that we have, Paul emphasizes, is that all of us have that. If we name the name of Christ, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that is the hope that we can look forward to. Even as we partake in the Lord's table, it's a reminder of a celebration that we have till we are with him in heaven, where we will be with him physically in his presence. Moving on in verse 5, he says, the base of the unity is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now the word for Lord used in the New Testament is primarily used in reference to Jesus Christ. Um, it's a reference to Jesus Christ who is Savior and who is Lord of all and over all. In Ephesians 120 uh, Paul says, uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only at this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we have the same Savior who is also our Lord. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. And because of that, Paul says, is the reason why we need to strive for unity. Because we have this Savior and this Lord. He says there's one faith and one baptism. Now the faith that's talked about here, I believe, is the faith that God gives us in salvation. And the reason why I say that is because everything that he's talking about, the one here, the one, all these one things, there's about seven ones that he's talking about. It's all in reference to what God has done. These are positional blessings that we have. It's not something that we have done of our own accord. This is because of our positional status of what God has done in our lives. We, can, we are therefore called to live this way. And so in that sense, uh, the faith that we have is a faith that comes from God. And in salvation, for each one of us who are saved, the faith that we had to believe in him is the faith that comes from God. In the same way as baptism as well. Now, the, even though the Greek word for baptism is primarily used in the context of water baptism, again, because I believe that everything that Paul's talking about here is positional that God has blessed every single Christian with. That is you know, a positional blessing that the baptism that's talked about here is a spiritual baptism. The baptism of the Spirit is the work by which the Holy Spirit places the believer into union with Christ and to, into union with other believers in the body at the moment of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, the baptism that he's talking about here is true for everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is this truth that should cause us to drive and to be eager to maintain the unity. Having talked about the second and third person of the Trinity, uh, Paul now um, read, uh, talks about the uh, first person of the Trinity. Look at verse 6. He says, One God... One and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now the word uh, Father here indicates that uh, you know we have been born again in Christ and now uh, are children of the Father. Now, if you were to understand why this is significant in terms of why we can call him Father, we need to go back to understand what it is our relationship with him before we got saved. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. Meaning that before we were saved, our relationship with God was that of people who were under his judgment and righteous wrath. That we deserved his wrath. Which is the state of everybody who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you don't know about this Jesus Christ, this is your default state. And it's not because it's an unloving thing, because God is a holy and righteous, and he's a just God, and he cannot let sin pass. But for Jesus Christ, but for the faith that we place in Jesus Christ, whereby which now we call him Abba Father. He's no longer our judge. He is our Father, 
And there's not just, like I said, it's not just an absence of conflict where we're no longer under the wrath, but there is this unity that we have where we actually call him Abba Father. And there is one Father that everyone who placed their faith in Jesus Christ have. Paul concludes the reality of the oneness of God and the unity that should cause us by saying uh, this, and I'm just quoting from uh, MacArthur on the comment of overall, through all, and in all. He says, Our one God and Father, along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, is over all and through all and in all. That comprehensive statement points to the glorious, divine, eternal unity that the Father gives believers by His Spirit and through the Son. We are God created, we are God loved, we are God saved, we are God fathered, we are God controlled, God sustained, God filled, and God blessed. We are one people under one sovereign, omnipotent, and omnipresent God. He's over all, and through all, and in all. The fact that That is the greatest confidence that we can have, that God is over all these things. He's through all these things, and he's in all these things. So this unity that we have, not only is it orchestrated by God, he's the God who enables us, he's the God who causes us. He's sovereign, omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. And so as we conclude the second point, Paul gives us seven reasons why we need to strive to maintain the unity. And broadly speaking, this is because of what God has done for us. This is nothing of our doing. This is completely what God has done for us through Christ. Before I remind you, I just want to remind you, before I move on, I just want to remind you that no church is perfect, neither is ours. We have weaknesses, we have sins, um, we have you know, failings in many ways. Um, And our church, what is it made up of? It's made up of a bunch of sinners who've come here because we're saved by the grace of God. What happens when you put a bunch of sinners together? We have problems. We step on each other's toes. You know, we don't like what each other says and we tend to find uh, problems with each other and we tend to, um, you know, um, be selfish with one another and, and, and we tend to hurt one another. And there's so many things that we do Uh, that uh, is a reason to cause disunity in the church. But I just want to remind you from what we just said, positionally, these seven things that he's saying, we are united because of these realities in each and every one of our lives. That even when you are discouraged, even if you feel like, oh, you know, I don't like this person, I don't like this thing, I don't like what's happening, or whatever, that the reminder is that far greater than what we feel is the reality that God has done this work in our lives through his spirit, God has done this work in uniting us. The God of this universe, the God who created everything, the God who sent his only son to come down and die for our sins on that cross, to redeem us, the God who is through his spirit working in our lives and causing us to change and to grow and to bear much fruit. A God who is through all and um, the God is uh, overall through all and in all. So let that be an encouragement for you to Uh, these spiritual realities realities be an encouragement to you even when you're discouraged to continue striving towards this unity towards this uh, life of living this way to promote the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace as we live as a church lastly um, coming to a third point the means of walking in unity Uh, so having explained okay you got to live this way Uh, and this is the reason why, because positionally God has blessed you this way. Now, here's how you do it, or what is the means by which you do it. Now, this particular passage that I'm, uh, or verse I'm looking at, verse 6, is actually the start to a whole section that's going to explore this in in detail, but because of the lack of time, and uh, we're not going to get into that, we're just going to stay at this verse. He says in verse 7, but, verse 7, is it verse 7, verse 6? Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He introduces the answer to the question, what is it that I need to do to maintain this unity? He says, 
grace was given to each one of us. Now the word grace here comes from the Greek word charis. Now we all know that the word grace basically means God's unmerited favor, or in other words, we say it also as um, uh, receiving something that we don't deserve. But when we think of the word, we often associate uh, grace just to that, the forgiveness that we've received. But grace goes beyond that. Um, Grace is also a reference to the spiritual gifts that God gives us, the gifts of grace. It is evident from the fact that um, when he says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So certainly, if you think about Ephesians 1, where he's blessed with every spiritual blessings, right? He's given, there's no different measure in that. We've all been given the same spiritual blessings. But here he's saying, this grace is according to the measure of Christ's gift. Meaning that Christ has measured this out or there's a, there's a certain measure of how Christ has gifted every person. You see, in salvation, God did not only wipe our slate clean, He did not just give us a new life, but He gave us the ability to live this way. He gave us the gifts that we need to live this way as this redeemed people of God, as His body of Christ. There's a few things I just want to uh, observe in this particular verse. Firstly, He says that it is given. He says the grace was given to each one of us. This is not something that we somehow earned or we somehow, you know, um, you know, came up with, uh, you know, on our own and something that we sort of developed, like, you know, discovered and did our own, or something that we came up with on our own. This is something that God has given to us. He has blessed us with these gifts. Secondly, it means also that uh, what he says here also uh, refers to the fact that each person who is in Christ, has been given a gift. So not only is the gift given, but each person has been given a gift. Meaning that there's not a single person sitting here who names the name of Christ that has not been given a gift from God or a measure of gift from Christ. Rather than say, I don't have a gift, um, what you need to say is, I don't know what my gifting is and that I need to uh, discover that and use it for God's glory. I need to know what God has gifted me with. You see, your spiritual gift came or gifts came along with your salvation. Everyone who is saved, everyone who's called, received a gift. It was a package deal. And the reason it was given to you is not so that you can hide it and then uh, live on your own, but that you can use it for the building up of the body. You can use it for the building up of the church. Meaning that, you know, when you join the church, you didn't join it because you walked through the front doors of any church. You joined the church when you were saved. And in God's plan and purpose, the gift he gives you is for using within the context of that body to grow and to build that body up. Thirdly, Paul says that the gift is given according to the measure of Christ's gift, like I mentioned earlier. Paul is not saying that he's given more gifts more to some people and he's given less gifts to other people and that, you know, he's limited his grace to some but has, you know, and given more to others. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that God has already given us the spiritual gifts according to the capacity to which he has called us. He's not called us all for the same thing. You know, this is the beauty of the diversity of the local church where God calls different people for different things. One commentator says, thus the phrase, according to the measure of the gift of Christ, means that each believer gets a gift and Christ determines the amount of the gift. What's important is that every gift is necessary for the functioning of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 18-22 says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. 
and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Verse 24, which our more presentable parts not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's basically saying that the unity of the church is maintained through the diversity of the gifts that God has given and blessed his church. And so just like the car needs a battery to start, the church needs every aspect of the gifting that God's given us. There is no, um, there, there's no gift that is you know, better than the other. We need all these gifts for the proper functioning of the body. Now, when we think of serving and when we think of gifts, often we um, reduce it to things like our oh, music ministry and you know, uh, Sunday school and um, you know, hospitality and things like that. Um, but can I encourage you to, and th- while those are true and those are the gifting that God gives us, God gives us the uh, gifting and the sensitivity to serve and to teach and to uh, and to care and to sing and to use what he has given us as talents to use for his glory. But often we just limit, when we think of spiritual gifts, that gifting that God's given to the church, um, we often are limited to those things and, and in, in sort of we categorize these in boxes of ministries. But the reality is that it goes beyond that. The reason why God has given us these gifts is so that we are intentionally spiritually building each other up. We are intentionally working towards promoting the unity in the body. And these are therefore not done just by the fact that I sing or just by the fact that I serve, but in me serving, I have that eagerness and the attitude and the desire to do spiritual good to the person so that the body is built up in the unity, spiritual unity. Not over niceties, not over commonalities, not over the fact that we can enjoy a good meal together, but because it's based and bound on Christ. And so often we can overlook that. And, the re- and when we overlook the spiritual realities of these gifts and we just label them into boxes of ministries, what happens is the gospel sort of gets lost in between. And the spiritual realities and the centrality of spiritual relationships gets lost in between. And what happens? It becomes superficial. It just becomes a nice Christian club to come to. That's what church ends up being. Which is why our act of service must extend beyond just the practical act, but to a spiritually intentional relationship. We need to serve and bless one another by praying for one another, by encouraging one another in the word, by truly having open, responsible, accountable relationships that truly help us to encourage one another, to correct one another. Because that is what binds us. And the practical things we do around that, those are essential and those are needful. But it must not be void of spiritual relationships. It must not be void of spiritual service. And it must not be void of intentional and eagerness to maintain the unity of the body and to live this way. What happens if we don't do that? Like I said, our relationships become superficial. We do a ministry, or we may serve, or we may usher, we may sing, we may do Sunday school, and it's all about just getting on one program after another done, and the church just going through the motions. There's no real depth. There's no real gospel understanding. And what happens when the gospel gets minimized? The gospel does not become clear. The gospel does not become displayed. And when people look at our church, they will see ourselves. They won't see Christ. They might see a great church. They may see a lot of great programs, but they will not see Christ put on display. And what happens? The lost will continue to be not reached. The gospel will not be preached to those who are lost. And we will just live self-centered lives where Christ does not gain glory. So as we come now to the conclusion of today's sermon, I just want to remind you that We've been looking at Ephesians 4, um, and the call for us here is to live in a manner that's worthy of a calling, that is demonstrated in our eagerness 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we do this um, you know, as we live together as God's people. And when we live together, we have to be those that are marked by humility, by uh, gentleness, by patience, to bear one another in love. Why do we do that? Because ultimately, as we do that, we uh, build each other up, and we mature, and we grow, and then we, are, we become a people that are marked by love. When people see us, the, by this shall all men, all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. They will see a people that truly love each other. We will see a people that truly love those that are lost. And if we do the contrary, we'll be a people that shame the name of Christ. And the reason why we do this is because positionally, we have, we are in one, where, well, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And so in the light of that positional reality, we are to live this way. To those of us who are Christians, the local church is an expression of the universal church. It is a local church that makes this universal, invisible church visible. All these things that he's talking about in terms of uh, the church and, and, and how we are made part of one body, this big body of believers, it, the rubber hits the road. The, it is the way it is practiced, is practiced in the local body. If you're here today and you're a Christian who names the name of Christ and you're not part of a local church, you're not committed, you're not responsible, you're not accountable, you're not accountable part of a local church, can I encourage you to uh, strongly consider that? It may not be here, it may be another church, but that you would be part of a local body where this reality can be lived out and displayed. Because you have a responsibility in salvation to build each other up. It's not an option. It's not one of those things that only pastors and elders and, and the 20% of the church does. It's something that every single Christian who names the name of Christ has to do, which is why Paul is urging them to do it this way. You see, the greatest, greatest danger of the church is not um, from the change of politics and uh, government and the policies of Dan Andrews. The greatest danger that we can face as a church is a spiritual apathy to the way that God has called us to live. Because when we take that out, all we have is moralism. If we do not start striving for the unity of the gospel, we will fail to take, uh, the gospel will take to fail, fail to take centrality in our relationships. And what Christ has done will stop being a reality. And the functioning of the church becomes a list of programs and clever gimmicks and ultimately we will lose the centrality of our worship and that is God. But on the other hand, as we strive to maintain the unity by doing spiritual good to one another, the gospel becomes clear. What Christ has done becomes an ongoing reality and the source of strength as we continue to grow in maturity and we will be a people who are marked by love for God and marked by love for others. If you're listening to me this morning and you don't know this Jesus Christ who I'm talking about, um, perhaps um, you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, can I encourage you to come and talk to myself or talk to someone that you came with um, or talk to anyone um, that you know is a Christian in this congregation? Because, um, like I said earlier, without Christ, the default position of every person in this world is under the righteous judgment, the wrath of God. But there is hope. There is good news. You know, with, with the bad news, there is great news. The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ coming to pay the penalty of the sins that we couldn't pay. He came, he lived a life. You know, the reason why you're, we're, you're under the wrath of God is because you have sinned against him. But Jesus Christ came into this world as a human form, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for our sins. And when he did that, he gave us his perfect righteousness. His righteousness was placed on us, and he took our sins, he paid for it. He died, he rose again, and now he defeated death. Which is why we have hope as Christians, and you can have the same hope to one day be with him in heaven where 
everything that God intended when he created man to have a right relationship with him will be made right. And it's not late. You don't know if you walk out this door, if you've got the breath that uh, you have in your nostrils right now, if that'll remain. So I'd encourage you to come and speak to one of us. and would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this beautiful day that you give us as a privilege to worship you. Lord, we come uh, realizing, Lord, that we are people who are so fallible. We are your people who have failed again and again and again in so many ways. Lord, we come, we listen to your word, we go back and then we forget what we've heard and we, we, we fall again, Lord. But we thank you because of your graciousness, your kindness, your goodness, your mercy towards us. Lord, and we pray that the realities that we've just heard this morning, that it would ring true in our hearts, that you would help us to descend into the depths of the realities of this unity that we have in Christ. That that would translate, that thinking, that knowledge would translate into the way that we live, into the way that we love one another, into the way that we want to spiritually do good to one another that we will be a people who are marked by love and that we will be a, a people who would be intentional in displaying the glory of God for the world to see, that Christ will be put on display. So we ask that you strengthen us, you bless us, you guide us in this way. These things we ask in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.